She had a delicately cleft chin, and she was short. Although her voice sounded conversational, it had projection. She had never acted. She had found this voice in classrooms. That's how Tracy Kidder described teacher Chris Sajak in the opening of his book Among School Children. The author spent a year following Chris in the late 1980s. She was a fifth grade teacher in an economically depressed section of Holyoke, Massachusetts, known as the Flats. Ultimately, the book told the story of the mundane heroics of teaching. In what follows, we hear Chris Zajac, now retired, reflect on that memorable school year with 30 years hindsight, and Tracy Kidder reads selected excerpts from his book. As Kidder himself describes it, Chris was the kind of teacher who wouldn't give up on students who so many others had discounted. Even the most troubled children had attractive qualities for Chris. Even the most toughened, she always felt, wanted to please her and wanted her to like them, no matter how perversely they expressed it. She belonged among school children. They made her confront sorrow and injustice. They made her feel useful. Most of the book's first half focused deeply on one of those troubled children, a challenging preteenager named Clarence. He was an extreme for Chris, who already had several years' experience under her belt. Although Clarence never seriously hurt anyone, he sometimes lashed out violently at his classmates, and no amount of scolding or cajoling seemed to help. Even when he'd get in, as soon as he'd go to that coat closet, he'd be hitting somebody or throwing something, or immediately you'd have to give him attention. It was just a constant barrage of, you know, misbehavior. He forced Chris to confront an impossible question that's all too common in education. How can a teacher balance the overwhelming needs of one exceptionally difficult student against the more modest but still important needs of 24 others? Kidder changed the children's names in his book to protect their privacy, so Clarence is not the student's real name. As Kidder wrote, Chris's first introduction to Clarence came from a stack of papers. Chris had received the children's cumulative records, which were stuffed inside salmon-colored folders known as cumes. The thicker the cum, the more trouble, she told Miss Hunt, who was a student teacher in her classroom. Clarence's cum was about as thick as the Boston phone book, and Chris couldn't help having heard what some colleagues had insisted on telling her about Clarence. One teacher whom Chris trusted had described him as probably the most difficult child in all of last year's fourth grade class. Chris wished she hadn't heard that, nor the rumors about Clarence. She'd heard confident but unsubstantiated assertions that he was a beaten child. It used to drive me crazy when you'd get, uh, you know, your list of kids and the teacher before would say, let me see who you got this year. And they'd, they'd say, oh, you know, him or, you know, her or, oh, you're lucky you got that one. I mean, it's like I didn't want to have any preconceived notions because sometimes personalities don't gel. Sometimes you, you know, the, the year before that kid was awful and then you get them and either something's changed in their life or something clicks between the two of you. But with Clarence, nothing clicked. I must have had to interrupt lessons every day on numerous times because he'd do things that would um, purposely disrupt. I mean, it would be like, you know, 
dropping his chair over so he'd fall on the floor so everybody would have to look at him and um, just anything that was the norm for the classroom, he wouldn't follow. There was the day when Clarence got angry at Alice over a classroom game, kicked Alice in the back of her legs on the way to reading, was rude to Pam, who scolded him, got even by punching Arabella during indoor recess, hit Arabella again right in front of Chris, which was unusual, and when Chris got him out in the hall, called her a bitch. I think after a while they were sick of their classroom being interrupted by this this kid that just couldn't follow any norms of the classroom. But he, you know, there there was a lovable part of him, too. When I would sit next to him to help him with his work, he would always, like, try to get next to me, almost like cuddle into me, not not really cuddle, but just sort of get next to me. And that, you know, that was endearing. I mean, you couldn't help but feel bad for the kid because he was looking for something he wasn't getting at home. For Chris, Clarence's life outside school seemed too distant even to imagine. She knew only that Clarence lived in the flats with his mother. She'd have taken action if she'd seen any physical signs to support the schoolhouse rumors about Clarence being beaten. But she had been keeping a lookout and hadn't seen any. She couldn't do anything about his life away from school, whatever it was like. She told herself, let's face it, I as a teacher have to deal with things as they are in the classroom whatever the situation is at home. And in the classroom, the situation with Clarence wasn't improving. If anything, it was getting worse, and Chris lacked much-needed support. We did have guidance counselors in the school, but, you know, it was a school with 550 kids about with one guidance counselor. It was hard. And to be honest, you know, the counselor that we had there at that point was... He wasn't what Clarence needed. He just wasn't, you know, he wouldn't show up when he was supposed to be seeing him, and he was just um, not what Clarence needed. The rest of the class needed attention from her, too. Even the ones who didn't seem to need her as much as Clarence had a right to her attention. The strain of trying to give it to them while always having to keep an eye on Clarence had accumulated. She felt angry now when she had to stop a lesson or some special tutoring for one of the other needy children, such as Julio or Pedro, in order to get Clarence to do some work or in order to deal with another of his eruptions. If she yelled at Clarence, the other children felt distressed. She could see it in their faces. Toward the middle of the school year, a big meeting was scheduled to determine Clarence's fate. Essentially, there were two options. He could stay in Chris's classroom, or if a team of education specialists deemed it necessary, he would be sent to a special school for kids with severe emotional and behavioral needs, where he would be put in what was known as an alpha class, basically the equivalent of an alternative program for troubled students. Chris had never lost a student to an alpha class. She prided herself on creating a safe space for all of her students. She felt deeply conflicted about the big decision. The meeting happened Thursday, past the long desk in the office and into the windowless, overheated conference room at a little before noon went a parade of five experts on troubled children. Chris went in, too. The only person missing was Clarence's mother, though she had been officially notified. When, about an hour and a half later, the parade came out of the conference room, Clarence was no longer a member of Chris's class. The news traveled quickly through the office. 
Clarence would go to an alpha class as soon as paperwork permitted. I think any teacher, you go in thinking that you can make everybody's lives better and, um, you know, you're going to have a success story for every kid, but you're not. And some things are completely out of your control. When he realized what was about to happen, Clarence grew anxious. In his final writing assignment for Chris, he expressed his displeasure. I'm not going to that school because I don't like it and I don't think that school is a good place for me. And why did you put me in that school? It is not a good place for me. I know Monday through the whole week I'm not going to that school. I mean it. You shouldn't have said yes. No, I'm not going to the school. I'm going to run away. Chris took him into the hall. Give it a chance, Clarence. Nope. The teacher seemed nice, didn't she? Why don't you want to go? What's so bad about that school? Tell me what you don't like about it. I think you'll like it. I really do. He just kept shaking his head. Each of the kids wrote cards and wrote something special to him. Um, I, I brought in a cake. You know, he liked being the center of attention. So we tried to make it as easy for him as possible. And I, you know, explained to the kids that he was going somewhere where, you know, it'd be good for him. He'd be in a better place. He'd meet new friends. So I remember him leaving, a lot of the kids giving him hugs. Um, and it was, you know, it was sort of sad. It was, it was bittersweet, I guess, the words. The classroom quieted down after Clarence left, and Chris and her students continued on with the fifth grade. Like every year, Chris encountered disappointments and successes. She reached some students while others eluded her. The next year, she taught sixth grade, working with several of the same kids. Then she became a writing and reading specialist who coached other teachers. After that, she held different administrative positions. Chris didn't hear much about Clarence over the years, but he paid her a surprise visit one day, about six years after he had left her fifth grade classroom. He came to the door, buzzed, and they said, oh, you know, you have a visitor, and they said his name. So I said, oh, well, send him down. He had been in um, some kind of a home for kids that just couldn't handle, you know, wherever they were before. And a counselor there read him parts of Tracy's book, and he came back to apologize to me, which was completely unnecessary, but, you know, touching. Clarence talked about how he had attended a vocational school for a while and how much he had enjoyed some culinary arts classes. But it was hard for Chris to get a read on how he was really doing. Still had that handsome face and the big eyes and all that, but you could tell he was more hardened. I don't know if he was spinning something for me, but, you know, it was important for him to see me, and that was, that was fine. A year later, Clarence came back again. This time, too, Chris was touched, but she couldn't get a clear read on what was for real and what was spin. He came back to tell me he was moving to Atlanta, but I don't know if that happened or not. So that's about all. It meant a lot. It was, you know, it meant a real, real lot, especially for a kid like that. And I just hope he's doing well. That was more than 20 years ago. Chris never saw Clarence again. But she took what she learned from the loss and used it as much as she could to help prevent future losses. 
Reflecting on him now, Chris says she might have treated Clarence a little differently, and she would have tried her best to seek out more support. I probably wouldn't have given him that negative attention as much as he was craving. I probably would have searched for help from guidance than I did at that moment. At that time, I thought, well, I can just take care of it. I, you know, I'll take care of it in the classroom. And But I probably would have been more of a, an advocate for him for getting the help that he needed within the, the school environment. Clarence had special needs, and knowing what she knows now, Chris says she would have also preferred what's known as inclusion, when students with special needs are kept in their regular classrooms instead of getting sent away for part of the day. Under inclusion, the special needs teachers come to the students rather than the other way around. You don't take a kid like that and bring him to a new environment and expect him to come back into the room and just sit. I mean, part of one, one of the things now that I, I reflect, when he would come back from that, he'd be more disruptive. He'd walk in the room, I'd be teaching, he'd be prancing in front of the class, trying to get everyone's attention. Chris applied some of what Clarence taught her when she became an administrator. She always tried to make sure her teachers had enough support. Often that meant playing an active role in helping to counsel and to calm the most disruptive students. As the years went on, I used what I didn't have in that classroom to make sure that I gave to other teachers the support that they needed for kids that were not quite as involved as he was but could disrupt the classroom and needed sometimes just timeouts from that room for him or them and everybody else in the classroom. Chris definitely learned a lot from teaching Clarence, but in the end, she had no clue whether he had learned anything lasting from her. That happens a lot to teachers. On an individual level, at least, they don't always get to know what kind of impact they had. But an undying belief in human potential, both her students and her own, kept her devoted to the work of education for decades. One of the things that I was adamant about was that even though he had all those troubles and, and you know had learning disabilities, for better or worse, I didn't um, lower my standards for him because I feel like almost the cruelest form of prejudice is not expecting as much from these kids. If I picture now, I don't picture the disruptive things that he did. I picture his face and his eyes and his smile. Chris Zajac is retired and splits her time between East Ham, Massachusetts, and Florida. Tracy Kidder has written several more books, including Mountains Beyond Mountains, which tells the story of physician Paul Farmer, and Good Prose, The Art of Nonfiction. Neither of them knows what ultimately happened to Clarence. This podcast was created by The Teacher Project, an education reporting fellowship at Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by Mallory Falk with assistance from Zoe Kirsch. Thanks to Aaliyah Wong and to Matt Thompson at The Atlantic for their support. And many thanks to Chris Zajac for sharing her memories and to Tracy Kidder for lending his voice. <laughs>